Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 11. This is the podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge, talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England and podcast host of this podcast, Doctor Informed. In this season of Doctor Informed, we've been discussing topics relevant to hospital doctors, those coffee room conversations that we have or wish we'd had earlier that give us light bulb moments but are nowhere to be found in any of the How to Be a Doctor books. Following the huge success of our little sister podcast, Sharp Scratch, putting together a series of episodes on queerness in medicine, I felt that in this penultimate episode of the podcast, and of course it is also Pride Month, it was the right place and the right time to shine a light on LGBTQ plus issues in hospital, what it's like to be a doctor, and more importantly, what it's like to be a patient. Since the Stonewall riot of the 28th of June 1969, which was the birth of the LGBTQ plus rights movement, the community has had quite a journey. While there have been many successes, the fight for marriage equality, the ban on conversion therapy, to name some, it would be wrong to assume that the battles are all won. Pride has and always will be a protest, a fight for the rights of a marginalised community. A 2022 BMA survey looking at the experiences of LGBTQ plus doctors and medical students showed the majority of these people still do not feel comfortable to be completely open with everyone in their workplace about their sexual orientation and their gender identity. Just under half, 46%, of lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer respondents reported they were open about it and just over a third, 34%, of trans respondents said that they were open with everyone in their place of work or study. Discrimination and harassment persist. Over a quarter, 29% of respondents, and three in five trans respondents, 59%, consider their experiences were serious enough to amount to unlawful discrimination, abuse or harassment. But most of these incidents still go unreported, with 78% of lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer respondents and 70% of trans respondents saying they'd not reported their experiences to anyone. If the people working in healthcare feel like this, what about the patients? Joining me to talk about this hugely emotive and important topic today are Michael Farquhar and Greta McLaughlin. Michael, as well as being an NHS consultant, you are also most famous recently as pioneering the amazing NHS Rainbow Badge Scheme. Before I quiz you about this, uh, and I will in detail, um, can you start by introducing yourself to our listeners and telling them a little bit more about yourself? Uh, So I'm Mike Farker. I'm a consultant paediatrician at Evelina London Children's Hospital. My area of expertise is paediatric sleep medicine, which is quite niche. Uh, But as you say, I've had an interest over the last five, six years or so in trying to think about uh, how we improve LGBT plus healthcare uh, and make people a bit more aware and how we can begin to try and make that a little bit better. Um, I think as with many of us who have an interest and work in this area, it comes a lot from our own experiences, uh, growing up, coming out, uh, working in the NHS and seeing the system and trying to see what we can do to try to make things a bit better. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and giving up your precious time. Uh, Greta, it's an absolute joy to have you back. Um, apart from being my predecessor as editorial registrar at the BMJ and leaving some pretty huge shoes to fill, uh, I know that you have your fingers in lots and lots of other pies. So please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd love to say that the standard has dropped since I left, but I think I don't think that would be true, Clara. I think you've definitely raised the bar, so well done on that. Oh, cheers, um, Yeah, so I'm a general surgical trainee working down in the southeast of England. I am part of the Pride in Surgery Forum, which is basically the LGBTQ contingent of the Royal College of Surgeons England, which was set up... Um, after the uh, Kennedy report, which was a, a massive report into uh, diversity at the Royal College of Surgeons England, which found it to be slightly lacking in places, to be completely honest. I identify as a bisexual woman. Uh, I have a wife and a small child who's about 17 months now. I'm very excited to be talking about uh, everything, everything gay today. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about everything gay. Thank you so much for joining us, Greta. Michael, I've read some of your previous interviews uh, and I was really interested to hear about your early life, your experiences, how this inspired you to come up with um, the Rainbow Badge Scheme. If you feel comfortable, could you share some of those experiences and explain how they impacted on that journey? So I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland in the 80s and 90s and the Highlands of Scotland is an amazing place for many, many reasons, but it is a generally small sea conservative part of the world. And the UK in the 80s was an environment where we know that the vast majority of people saw gay people, because that was the question that was usually asked, as being not normal. Um, so, you know, the social attitude survey that looks at what people think about things, it's around about 80% of people uh, in the UK in the 80s would have agreed with the statement that being gay is not normal. Um, I grew up, uh, so my grandparents were religious. One of my grandfathers was a member of something called the Free Church of Scotland, which has had a little bit of media attention recently because uh, Kate Forbes is a member of that church who was almost elected First Minister of Scotland uh, earlier this year. Uh, and it has very specific views about gay people in general. Uh, and has gone on to oppose equal marriage in Scotland, amongst all sorts of other things. Um, and it just meant that that was an environment that you weren't really able to even think about being gay as a positive thing. And I was aware from uh, well before my teenage years that I was different. I kind of had sussed out that I was probably gay, whatever that meant, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And at the time that I was beginning to do that, it was at the time Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister at the time, where she was standing up and made a famous speech at the, the Tory party conference in 1987, saying you know, that any child that was basically told that being gay was OK was being cheated out of their inalienable right to be normal or something like that. Um, and that just makes you feel very scared, very frightened. It turns you in. It just means that you have no ability to talk in any meaningful way about what you're thinking or what you're feeling because everything around you is telling you that you are wrong and that is a horrible way for any child to grow up mm. and I think my generation of gay men of LGBT plus people in general I think there is a long shadow of that I think uh, of how people were made to feel at that time I didn't come out for a very long time I came out in my mid-30s uh, officially um, and a lot of that was a persistence of that. It's that kind of idea of, well, how am I ever going to have these conversations, all the rest of it. And I think one of the really important things about this is that in the 80s, the people around me were, it wasn't that they were bigoted, it wasn't that they were actively homophobic, they were just normal for their environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really important because I think sometimes we perhaps demonise people 
But it was just, that's just the way everybody thought. So nobody really thought to challenge it. And that then persists as I came out in my mid thirties. Um, and I'm the kind of person that once I decide that I'm doing something like coming out, I then decide, well, actually let's go, you know, hundred percent at it. And I was quite determined to try and do something to make things better. The Rainbow Badge project itself, by the way, is not entirely, well, it's very definitely not my idea. Uh, it came out of a conversation between a group of friends in a farmhouse in France. We were on holiday together, late night drunken conversations, mixed group of straight and queer people talking about, all working in healthcare, talking about the kind of things that I think we're going to talk about today. And the idea came out of that. And actually, I wasn't the one that came up with the actual idea. But what I was, was the person who six months later had a really bad day at work and decided I was going to actually come back to that idea and do something about it. And that's where the project came from uh, around about then. But the idea itself was very much a group uh, effort and it wasn't me that came up with the actual idea. It was uh, another paediatrician, Jay Cares. That's very diplomatic of you, uh, Mike. I know I just would have taken that taken that and run with it no but I I, I I hear what you're saying and I think you know it's so many of these things it's not it, it can't just be one person to do it because that's that's also a, I suppose it's a big responsibility as well um because then when people come back and you know I will go on to probably talk about this a little bit later but criticisms of things like this taking that on as one person you know it, it always has to be a bit of groupthink um to get these things across the line, I think. So that bit of it, honestly, was mainly me uh, in doing it. And and yes, and we can talk about that, that became one of the problems, uh, is that it becomes very difficult being one person mm. responsible for something as big as this project then became. And that, that informs a lot of the changes in, and a lot of where the project is now was that. Uh, but yeah, there were definitely problems around about that. Can I ask a question, Mike? Because I've, I've I've known you a while and heard you talk about this as well. Did you have any idea it would be as big as and successful as it was when you first not, not bought, bought your five hundred badges? I think it was your first. Uh, not not to this extent. I thought it would be something that you know. Obviously, there was some hope that it would start conversations, which I think, in honesty, is is the value. Certainly, the the early days of the project. That is the most important thing that it did. It started all sorts of conversations at all sorts of levels. And that was really all I really wanted it to do. I always had this idea that if the original idea became something, that there would be a potential to try and do something bigger with it. Um, and that was a really key principle when we were expanding the project, was making sure that it, it meant something. Um, but no, I had no idea it would go as big and as quick as it did. It was quite overwhelming at some points. Um, clearly, there was a gap in the market, I think. It was, I think, I think, I think us gays were mm. waiting for something. I think, and and actually, the the allies were waiting for it as well. And mm. you know, the wind was in the right direction, and, and politically, it was it was the right time. And um, you know, thank you, Mike, because it, it it does mean something. I think, and I was um, I have a rainbow lanyard. I have a rainbow NHS badge. Uh, sometimes I wear my rainbow jumper at work just to really, in case there's any doubt, uh, just to really represent <laughs> for my patients and my colleagues. Uh, being a surgeon in particular, I think that's very important. Um, and I wear these things and most people don't pay any attention or sort of ask a couple of questions about it, um, which I, th I actually think is quite nice uh, that it, it's not sort of seen as, as, as a big deal as such. Um, but I had one patient who said, oh, I really, I really like your lanyard. Uh, and I said, oh, thank you very much. And I said, oh, yeah, we went to Pride recently. And I said, oh, that's great. Uh, and there was just that, that that was it. But it was just a nice little sort of I said, oh, brilliant. you know, you've got, you've got to you've got to represent or something. something. And I got a bit emotional afterwards. I sort of had to we were sort of walking back from the ward round. I was a bit like, oh, 
you know, I, I hope I've made that patient feel a bit more welcome in, in healthcare because we, we know that there's the evidence that shows that LGBTQ patients put off coming to healthcare because they don't think they're going to be treated the same or are going to have discrimination. Um, so that was my, I, I, I felt so grateful for wearing all the rainbows and, and for doing that. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person that, that's had that experience, Mike. So thank you for it. Greta, I'm interested. I mean, I think firstly, Mike, thanks so much for sharing, you know, your painful experience of, of growing up with a, with a lot of shame. Um, and I think, you know, I'd like to think that we'd moved on. Greta, you probably a little bit younger than Mike. <laughs> I don't want to make any assumptions. Um, do you feel that coming out, you know, either in your home life or at work, did you feel that because there was more representation that you felt that there was less shame? Or do you think that this is still a massive problem for people at work? Um, I think for me, it's interesting because I've, I've got about four, there's four or five different stories that all relate to coming out because as, as, as Mike knows, you don't just come out once and you're done. Oh, mm. oh I've done it. Oh, what a relief. Uh, you know, you have to come out to your friend you haven't seen in 10 years or yeah. to your family member or to your work colleague. And then as a trainee, you change hospitals and then you've got yeah. to come out again and yeah. you've got to X, Y, and Z. My wife has a great story where um, she does recruitment for a living. Um, and I'll check that she doesn't mind me sharing this story. Um, but you, you meet a lot of people. Um, and at the time she was engaged and she was wearing her engagement ring. Um, and one of the gentlemen uh, that she met said, oh, what does your future husband do? Uh, and Beverly just said, oh, he's a surgeon. And he said, oh, you must be very proud, blah, 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 blah. And her, her boss afterwards said, oh, how come you didn't pick him up on that? Because the other two you you mentioned, and she said, to be honest, I've I've come out enough today. I'm a little bit tired. I just, you're never, you're never quite sure how people are going to take it. So I, I, I just couldn't be bothered. And I think there's an element of that. I, I wasn't out at work mm. until I was out with my sort of... Uh, uh, what's the word compatriots people that sort of same level um so the f1s that i was with uh the people that i would count as my friends that would sort of go down to the pub with um wasn't out in regards to some of the registrars and consultants and definitely wasn't sort of as out and proud as i am now um and mostly that was because i wasn't sure of how it was going to get taken um mm. I definitely had some jokes about comfortable shoes um being thrown around um had one um associate specialist who during an endoscopy training list spent circa two hours talking about how he thought gay people were gay because of trauma that they'd undergone during their teenage oh, years Christ. um and in, he was a lovely guy he was a good trainer um but he had these views and didn't know that I was um gay queer um and I just I didn't have the confidence to say hang on a minute that's not true that's quite an old-fashioned view to have in fact that's quite a wrong view to have uh here are the reasons why um but interestingly since I've been more out as it were um, I've had little pushback. Um, perhaps that's because I'm now what's considered a senior trainee. Um, mm. Maybe it's because I don't care as much. I was going to swear there, but I don't care as much. Um, and I think if people are going to be um, 
bigoted about it in this day and age, I definitely feel as though I can call people out on that with, with a lot more comfort. There was, a, again, an ODP uh, in theatres once who made the comment, oh, something, 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 oh, that's so gay. I just immediately said, absolutely nothing wrong with being gay. I don't think you meant that in a derogatory term, did you? And he went, oh, oh, actually, no, I didn't. I said, yeah, please don't use that expression again. He kind of went, oh, okay. Um, That was it. That was the end of the conversation. Um, But me, 10 years ago, would not have had the balls to do that. Uh, Yeah. Would not have been able to do that and not as sort of quickly and on the ball would have gone home, you know, wallowed in, should I have said something, shouldn't I? Um, Mm. Don't get me wrong, there are still plenty of times when I don't call things out that I wish I could have um but I, th- I think with seniority um definitely comes an ability to call some of that stuff out much more easily than as an f1 as an f2 when you're still trying to work out how the blooming blood system works uh, you know how, how do you refer to the med reg let alone stand up for your beliefs I want to come back to that idea of how you call stuff back but I want to pick up something that you and Mike have both alluded to excuse me um so you said there really nice guy really good trainer said something fairly homophobic and and mike you said earlier about you know it's people are a a product of their environment and they're not bad people often and that sympathy i think is it's really it's really interesting and i think it's really important did you always feel like that when people said things that were were you know homophobic or queer phobic or is that is that something that you've had to come to over time? And, and how did that process work for you? A bit of both. I think that's probably quite a complicated question to talk through in honesty. Um, I think it depends who the person is. So, you know, the people I grew up with, my family, my friends, are people obviously that I knew very well. And I think it's much easier to, to look back and see the things that made my life more difficult was a product of the, the the context around them rather than them and, and you know and as the years have gone by their views and opinions have shifted and you know they're very different in in terms of how they do that I think it's a little bit different in the kind of context that Greta was describing where you don't mm. really have that same connection and it's a bit more difficult and you can kind of infer that maybe it's a similar process but it's not for everyone I had a really interesting experience a couple of years ago doing a, a virtual talk uh, in a hospital where I was an SHO and I had I was there for a long time. I was an SHO, junior registrar there, knew everybody, uh, wasn't out at the time. And I was doing an LGBT plus talk to uh, that hospital. And one of the people in the audience was one of my old consultants. And I've been talking about exactly the kind of thing that Greta's just been talking about, you know, the casual use of uh, words like gay as a derogatory, oh, that's so gay, or all the rest of it. Mm. And I said, oh, you know, I, it's it's really difficult. You know, so one of the reasons I would have found it difficult to come out in that environment is because people were using phrases like that. Mm. And were they being actively homophobic? Probably not. Were they being passively homophobic and making it much more difficult to talk about that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Anyway, I said that and the consultant basically said, you know, great talk, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember anyone ever using words like that when you were here. And I'm well, but that's because it doesn't register with you. It's like, Mm, it was just, you know, it was background noise to you. But Mm. every time it happened to me, it went straight to my core. It's like, you know, and he went, oh, okay. So I think there's that as well. It's that it's people use these words without realising the the strength that they have, if they're you, Mm. that they don't have when they don't. I think... That was sort of what I was getting to with that question. I think there's this idea, 
two parts to that, I suppose. One one part is people can say, well, it's just language. I don't know why everybody's being so sensitive about it. And actually, if you are that person that feels that thing, you know, you you hear it more, it means more to you, it cuts more to your core. And therefore, it's not just words. It's It's part of your identity and the environment it creates. But I think the other thing also is, you know, it's very easy to hear people say things and respond with anger. And I think what was interesting to me about what you said before was that actually, you know, even if you don't have a relationship with somebody, instead of just saying they're a bad person, they've said something homophobic, I am angry about it. It's, you know, that sympathy of going back and saying, let's educate them, let's change the environment that they exist in. And I I think that that's a very mature, very good way of dealing with it. Don't, don't always manage that. And my my favourite way of doing it, of you, you asked at one point there about how you do that. The yeah. simplest way to do it is to play the idiot and go, what what what's what what do you mean that's so gay? I, I don't understand. Yeah. And then get them. And and actually, that's often a very good way of reflecting things back. Is just pretend that you don't understand. And actually, suddenly they they're in that context of having to really think about what they've said and go, oh yeah, okay. Um, I really I really like that. Greta, do you have any ways? I know you've you've mentioned before. Uh, it's interesting what you say because words do have power, and anyone that says that they don't is 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 just being naive. You know, there are certain yeah. words that we do not use in the English language because the power that they have behind them, the mm-hmm. N word in particular, we do not use that word, particularly as a white person, particularly in in the work environment. You do not use that word because the power that it has to it. Um, when people mm. say, oh, it's just a word or it's just a joke, you're being too sensitive. Actually, I'm not, because when you look at jokes, when you look at the implication behind them, then that's where you can then run into the difficulty. Um, Romney QC, who did the BMA um, report into sexism a few years ago, uh, I think it was 2018, um, has has a wonderful quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it slightly here, but essentially uh, it's not banter um, because everyone says, oh, it's just a bit of banter, isn't it? Oh, you know, you, you can't take a bit of banter. Um, and she says, if, if there's a power differential, uh, then it's not banter, it's bullying, harassment and, and sexism and homophobia. Um, and John Skinner, the, the immediate past president of, of the British Association of Orthopaedics, has also said something very similar. You know, it's not jokes and banter, it's homophobia, racism and sexism. And mm. I think that's where we've we've got to start changing because it does time down to changing cultures. And I th- the, one of the things that is easiest or that you can pick up on are, are those jokes. Because, again, like Mike said, I don't think people that make homophobic jokes majority of the time are bigots or are necessarily bad people they are products of the culture in which they live and work and where it's tolerated Mm. I think the creation of that environment where those things can foster I mean we talked uh, on the last podcast we did about um, sexism and sexual harassment about rape culture pyramids Um, Greta you mentioned that you are out at work um, and do you think that sometimes that almost puts a pressure on you to be the person that always has to call out this behaviour? Yeah, I think I think this is incredibly true. And talking, and I'm I'm in no way uh, speaking on behalf of um, of black women, um, but having had a conversation with some of my friends who are black women, some of the surgeons who are black women, 
there, there can be an exhaustion in that of constantly having to educate or being the person that is being asked about race, about homophobia, about misogyny. Me as a queer woman, I am okay with that. Um, I am happy to be that person that does the educating, but I don't think there should be an expectation that just because you know somebody that is gay or that you know somebody that is black, that they should be educating you. There's a great quote that a friend of mine says, he said, you know, I'll, I'll do some educating, but, but do the pre-reading first. Mike, I know that we've established that you're not the sole um, idea man behind the rainbow badge, but obviously your name has become attached to that. And, you know, much like being an advocate of work, I imagine that there is a huge responsibility that's that's come with that as well. Um, how's that experience been for you? You know, did you, was there a lot of pushback? Was there positive? And I mean, imagine there's also negative experiences with that as well. Like I can see you smirking. I'm interested in your uh, experience through all of this, you know, uh, through the process. There are lots of different layers to it. So the, you know, the project originally started off as this kind of guerrilla thing on Twitter. So there was 300 of these badges. I sent them to various bits and pieces. Uh, people that I knew would probably be respond positively and do that. And, and those people came back saying, the, the, the clear message that came back was they said, I've stuck this badge on and suddenly I'm having conversations that I've never had before. You know, people would say, oh, what's your badge about? And then they would come out to them or they'd give an extra little nuance to the history or whatever. And it made a real difference in some of those cases. Even on that kind of very early micro level, there were some really powerful stories of just how that symbol made something different happen. And that was the point where we realised that there was potential in the idea and because we use Twitter and social media, we then had a whole load of people going, I want one, I want one, I want one. And at that point, what we really clearly wanted to do was to make sure that the badge meant something. Um, there is a huge potential for harm if you uh, just think, oh, I'm going to stick this on, everybody will think this is a positive thing. And then an LGBT plus person approaches you and actually you respond in a less positive way or you just don't have any way of, of doing that you can actually make things a lot worse mm. um so what we really wanted to do was to make sure that there was some substance behind them around about that time uh in terms of first phase of criticism um it turns out there are some really strict rules about using the nhs logo uh oh. which i had broken um so then there were some interesting conversations about have you, have you actually broken the law you know, can you be sued? And I was like, oh. Ask um, for so, forgiveness, not so, permission. Well, yeah, that, that's where the whole <laughs> ask for forgiveness, not permission thing comes from very much in relation to this project. So that was smoothed over. And at that point, my own trust, uh, so I work for Everly London Children's Hospital, part of Guys in St Thomas's. They saw the potential in this. And I worked with uh, Jess Law, who's the communications manager at Evelina London, to put together what we called an implementation toolkit. It was basically putting together resources, information, links, just everything that we thought somebody who was committed enough to want to stick one of these badges on to try to make a difference, to give them the, the backing of, of some information. Not, you know, we weren't expecting to train them to be experts, just to make sure they had some awareness. And then we said, you didn't get a badge unless you had signed to say, I have read through all this. I understand the responsibility. I am prepared to do that. Um, and I think that is probably the single most important thing we did with the project, to be perfectly honest. We could have just gone into a, 
you know, mass market, give them to anyone who wants them. But we were really clear that that principle had to, to hold. And that's kind of where it then took off. We launched it around uh, Guys and St Thomas's. We gave the toolkit to lots of other trusts. And it, it took off really quickly, actually, uh, in a way that I wasn't quite expecting, but was quite rewarding at the time. Um, the dangers with that, though, is I am a cis white gay man. I have mm-hmm. a very particular experience of being LGBT plus that is not the same as everybody else's. And in particular, my experiences in almost every other way are very privileged compared to many of the other people in the LGBT plus community. And I'm not an LGBT plus health expert. Mm. And it very quickly became apparent to me through some relatively high profile things that I didn't have the knowledge or expertise to make sure that I was doing things right. Um, And as you will know, uh, over the last decade in this country, uh, the experience of trans and gender diverse people in particular has become increasingly uh, hostile in terms of what's directed at them mm. and it's really easy if you don't really understand that experience and that situation to say something that's well-meaning but actually makes things worse and I'm kind of in falling from Greta said it's and I made mistakes I made lots of mistakes I had lots of brilliant people early on who were in my dms and emailing me going we need to have a chat about what you've just said and why I know you think it's a good thing to have said but actually no so I was on a very steep learning curve with that And it became very apparent to me very quickly that I couldn't carry on being the only person involved in doing this. Um, Apart from anything else, Jess and I were doing it in our spare time. You know, so one of the criticisms we would get is, well, you know, somebody signed to say they've read it. How do you know they've actually read all that? Have you gone and checked? And we've gone, no, we haven't. We're doing this in our spare time. We have to trust people to a degree. Um, And that's where NHS England got involved. So at that point, it was obvious the project had a lot of potential, it had captured imaginations, it had encouraged lots of trust to invest in it and really say, yes, we believe in this, we want to put this in place for our organisation and do it, which was great. And Michael Brady, uh, who's the LGBT plus health advisor for NHS England, was aware, came on, we started talking. And at that point, what we agreed was to hand the project over to NHS England. And then NHS England then, Uh, did a a process where external organisations bid and that became phase two of the project. So the project was then contracted out to this consortium uh, of uh, Stonewall, the LGBT Plus Foundation, Switchboard, GLAAD, I'm going to forget someone, um, who (laughs) took on the responsibility of running phase two. And phase two is a very different beast to phase one. Mm. Phase two takes that idea and really puts the teeth behind it. So the phase two part of the project when a trust signs up to that, every aspect of their LGBT plus healthcare and support for staff is looked at in a huge amount of detail. They are given feedback. They're told what's good. They're told what's bad. They're given an award. Uh, so um, there are four levels of the award now. There's bronze, silver, gold. And there's also a kind of a, a working towards level that was brought in. Um, and in the project so far, I think we've awarded one silver and no gold. Um, So that kind of gives you an idea of the strength of the process and reflects the fact that we know that things are still not brilliant. So that even in the trust where this type of work is being done relatively well against that gold standard metric, it's there's still lots to to improve. So that journey of the project, I think, you know, that's very condensed, um, has been really important. But I think the the point that we made right at the beginning that, sorry, excuse me, there had to be something behind it. 
that it had to be more than just a bit of bling. It had to be linked to a bit of education, a bit of awareness, a bit of acknowledging responsibility has been absolutely key, I think, to why it's been able to grow in the way that it has. No, and I I think I speak on behalf of uh, anybody who's interested in this topic, that the fact that you'd, you have held that value so close to the middle of the project, I think, as as what's driven the success. Because I'm sure we all remember when everybody posted a black square on Instagram during Black Lives Matter's movement. I mean, it feels performative sometimes, activism, and I think it has to mean something. So the fact that you've done that has been amazing. Also, I think it's really... Really well done and really important, Mike, that you acknowledge that you couldn't do this on your own, that Mm. this was bigger than you and actually that that you were able to get so many different stakeholders involved because that's how we change. You know, we can all shout about stuff on Twitter. We can all shout about things, you know, in our back garden. Um, I'm just using Twitter as as the standard, basically. Um, But I I think getting that real change is is really, really hard and we have to do it together and we have to do it as allies, as people that this directly affects, as people that this may directly affect that we don't know about. Um, and, And on the sort of the looking in the the phase two side of things uh we were talking about this just before we started recording isn't it you know if it's not measured it doesn't matter um and i think that, that there's a huge yeah. truth to that that if you don't know the scale of the problem or if you don't know what people are doing and not doing um and yeah awards can sometimes seem a little bit naff can't oh we've got a gold badge but i don't i don't think it is that but actually, there is an importance to that because you can say, actually, we've gone up against these gold standards. We've audited ourselves and we have said we are really good at doing this or actually we're not quite as good. So we're going to do the audit cycle again to get you know medical with it. We're going to do a quality improvement project to, to improve ourselves, continuous improvement. Um, so, yeah, I think that phase two part is, like you say, a very different beat, but a really important part that wouldn't be there if you hadn't got that phase one. The the thing that Michael Brady insisted on when uh, it was put out to tender was uh, the NHS England LGBT Plus office has um, a set of key goals that it it is expecting to try to improve, to try and get things better. It comes from the original LGBT Plus action plan, which a previous iteration of the Tories uh, put in place. And Michael was really keen that the the project would become kind of the framework for putting in place all of those uh, aims uh, and, and things. So it's the badge was a foot in a door. It's a mixed metaphor, but anyway, um, it, it opened the conversations about these things. It got trusts thinking about it. And then the question that we put back to them was, well, OK, you've committed. You've got a nice bit of publicity in your local paper because you've got this lovely bit of bling. What are you going to do next? You know, how are you going to build on this? And that was the, the kind of thing. And that's where the phase two bit has gone. It's the what are you doing now to, to continue to do it? And as you will know, Greta, but, but the listeners may know, is that that idea of um, what is not measured doesn't matter is a really key part of that. Mm. Because when we're talking about the health challenges faced by LGBT plus people and the health inequalities that we know exist, the, the data that we do have tells us there's a problem, but we don't have a lot of the data. And if we don't have the data, we can't really put in place meaningful services to try to make things better. So that's a really key part of it, that we have to know what and who we're talking about to be able to make things better. 
I want to pick up on the evidence um, question because I think it's a really big one. Um, But first, a message from our sponsor. What would you do if you received a complaint from a patient? Did you know that one in four consultants will receive at least one formal complaint during their career? If a patient complains about you, it's important to have professional protection and the support of an expert medico-legal team by your side. What sets medical protection apart is the range of benefits that can assist and protect NHS consultants like you throughout your career. This includes a medico-legal advice line available 24-7 in an emergency. Don't be caught off guard. Get protected from just £549. Join now at medicalprotection.org. Data source MPS January 2023. The likelihood of a consultant non-claims NHS member experiencing a complaint cost quoted is the annual membership price for a UK medical consultant working exclusively in the NHS, subject to protection requirements and underwriting approval. Right, so back to talking about evidence. Obviously, you've talked about paucity of data around people that work in in the NHS and also in patients. Do you have any sense of how we start that? I mean, you obviously you have started that that journey and that conversation in in phase two of of the rainbow badges. But do you have a sense of you know if somebody's listening to this thinking I feel really passionate about this topic, how can I start collecting evidence? How can I start you know as well as being an ally, actually getting numbers to work out how we start addressing issues? Is there a sense of where we need to start? Is there a, a sort of an SOS level that we should start at and work down from? Yeah, so this again is, you know, so this is Michael Brady's work uh, in terms of doing it. And a lot of it is the basics. If you don't ask questions about sexual orientation, gender identity, trans status, then you cannot link health outcomes to those pieces of data. So a lot of it is just getting the basics embedded. And some of that is the, you know, the, the archaicness of NHS IT. You know, it's the, you know, one of the most, I think, the kind of challenging things for trans people a lot of the time is is just being able to get pronouns recorded correctly on an mm-hmm. NHS data system. You know, lots of our uh, IT infrastructure can't cope with something like that, which is fundamental to people's identity. So the real basics, uh, gathering uh, the core demographic data, and then that then allows it to be linked. And I think then once you've got that first level of data, you can start to look at the quest that will generate questions for what the next level should be. But you have to get that basics right first. And that's a big part of Michael's push uh, in terms of how we make that better. I know that we talk a lot about evidence as medics. We love evidence. We love facts about things. You know, we love to talk to patients about well, one in five people, this, that, this, that, and the other will happen. Do you think in an area like this that the evidence, that data, do you think it's always possible? I mean, I know you've talked about some of the basic information that we could collect and link it to health data, but do you think we're ever going to have the evidence to come back and say to our consultants, oh, look, here's some evidence about why homophobia is bad or why X, Y, and Z patient felt uncomfortable in our department because of language we used? Or do you think that there is always just going to be a bit of an evidence gap and actually numbers aren't really 
going to give us the full story? Or do you think that the numbers are, are really essential to what we're doing here? I'll get short. Um, uh, evidence-based medicine is really important and it drives really important decisions about the care that we deliver in lots of really important ways. But at its heart, medicine is about people. Mm-hmm. And I think story is just as important as the science a lot of the mm-hmm. time when you're talking about people. Um, we were talking before we started recording about um the equal marriage referendums uh, in Ireland and Australia. Now, I am delighted that those referendums were positive, but I don't think that should have been a referendum. I think that should have been something where the decision, it was clear that that was the right thing to do, and those governments should have made the decision that equal marriage is the right thing to do and we should do it. I think when you put things to the vote and things like that, you were inviting the majority to decide something for the minority and I think the evidence question is sometimes a little bit like that it's do I really need the statistics to tell you that homophobia is bad and it makes people Mm. feel unwanted in a hospital environment or if I tell you that that has been my experience should that not be enough for you to think well how do we take that on board and how do we make it better so evidence is important it gives that huge amount of backing particularly when we're lobbying for resources to make change I think evidence becomes really really important but I think the qualitative nature of stories and people's lived experiences should be enough to drive change uh, a lot of the time in its own right. I think it's really important to say that the evidence that we do have very much emphasises that LGBT plus people's experience is usually worse uh, in almost every way. Uh, you know, so during the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, work done looking at mental health uh, of LGBT plus people in particular. It was led in the UK through the LGBT plus foundation. Um, and, and it very clearly shows that, you know, there are more difficulties in the LGBT plus community compared to uh, the non-LGBT plus community. And you know, so I think one of the most powerful, you know, and I think Greta mentioned it earlier, that many LGBT plus people will delay accessing healthcare or choose not to access healthcare because they're scared or nervous they've had a previous bad experience or they've heard that their friends had a previous bad experience and obviously if you delay accessing healthcare and you do have a diagnosable illness or disease then it's likely to be a bit more progressed by the, you know so that and that will affect your outcome we know that uh, lgbt plus people access screening less frequently than non lgbt plus people and therefore will have worse outcomes so the data that is there is not good and the data that we don't have is likely to continue to confirm that. And also, interestingly, if you look at um, being a surgeon, I can speak from the the surgical point of view, um, looking at the workforce data, um, Mm. there's very little evidence and papers that are done into LGBTQ surgeons and their experiences, and all of them, unfortunately, show that I think that there's a a JAMA surgery paper uh, that basically says we need more evidence because they could only find five papers that were actually specifically related to LGBTQ. Um, And actually, they all show, unfortunately, that you're more likely to be discriminated against. You are less likely to come out at work. Um, One was based in America and says that you're much less likely to talk about your home life in front of your attendings, i.e. your consultants. You're slightly more likely to talk about it with your your colleagues on on the same level. Um, And again, the majority of people have overheard um, discriminatory behaviour and have been bullied. Um, And actually you're more likely to be sexually harassed as well. Um, so th- none, none of the evidence is good, unfortunately. Barring Mike's rainbow badge stuff. We're moving 
into the the final frontier of this podcast and I, it's a shame because I, I feel like we could probably talk for three hours four hours about this um and I think we've talked about a lot of we've talked about positive things we've talked about a lot of negative things and I, I kind of want to end it on a how we move forward note um Mike you've acknowledged that we are all white on this podcast and I think that that is is so important that I, I just want to you know say before we finish that from an intersectionality point of view I don't think any of us can talk to the experience of trans people or people who are not white or any of the many other people um, that we do not represent I've got it wrong Greta said that she's got it wrong Mike you've said you've got it wrong before if you are somebody that's listening to this thinking okay I want to be more of an ally what do you think the best piece of advice, apart from wearing the rainbow badge and, you know, engaging with all the materials that go with that? What do you think the best piece of advice that you could give somebody listening to this, patient or or staff member, about how you can be a better ally to people in this community? I think there are lots of things people can do. I think a lot of the time it's about centering voices that are not your own. Uh, so listening to the experience of people who have different life experiences to you and then rather than you echoing that or talking about it, centre their voice and let them talk if they feel comfortable to do so, which obviously is a really important part of that. But I think there's a lot of talking about people that goes on and I think making sure that voices are heard is actually really important. And that's a skill uh, and it can be done lots of, and I think that applies to lots of different uh, aspects of equality, diversity, inclusion work in general, um, that it's about making sure voices are heard. Um, Greta, you were gonna say something? Yeah, I think I think allyship is, is a really hard path to walk, but it's a really important one. Um, and I think there are, there are different things that people can do at different levels. I, I recently, in one of my um, recent trusts, got asked by a um, cis, white, straight uh, consultant to come and present on the work that we were doing at the college um, with PRISM. Um, just a weekly journal club. I mean, maybe 10 people in attendance um, went through some of the evidence, some of my experiences. That's a really nice allyship way of doing it and I think the other important thing with allyship is knowing when to take a step back which can be really tricky sometimes but you've, it, there's, there's the the line of hang on have I have I stepped over into now taking over somebody's voice have I now taken over that space that should have been occupied by the gay person by the black person there and I think that that can be a really tricky thing to to come across um, but I think if you're aware and when you get feedback on it to take it on board, again, we're all going to make mistakes. Um, we're not going to always get it right. Um, that's that's part of the learning process. Thank you, Greta. And I think that that was a nice way of ending it, that, you know, you don't always have to wear your rainbow jumper. You can lend it to other people as well. Thank you both so, so much for giving up your precious time um, on a really sunny day. Um, and it's Pride Month. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners um, for listening to Doctor Informed. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know. If you tell your friends about us, it helps them find the show. 
If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be notified of where our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us, and thank you, Greta and Michael. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Bye.